Greetings, comrades, everyone. This is your National Uprising edition of Seattle Sucks, the podcast about hating the city we love. I'm Greg. I'm here, of course, with Brian. Say hi, Brian. Hello, Greg. Uh, we're also joined by our good friend, friend of the show, Marina. Hey. Hi. Hey, Marina. How you doing? Good. Uh, there's, obviously, there's a lot we could talk about. We're itching to talk, for example, about Mayor Jenny's uh, explicit admission that SPD runs this town. Uh, we could also, I'm sure, sit here and theorize about the non-existent national response to COVID and how it relates to what is going on in the streets right now. We could certainly connect it, I'm sure, to skyrocketing unemployment. If we really wanted, we could probably sit here and weave a thread about how the Democratic Party's recent announcement that they will be altogether finally abandoning their traditional role of co-opting social movements by offering moderate reforms to defuse them by going with Biden over Bernie. And we might, you know, we might find something valid in there somewhere, but we might all be better served, I think, by keeping in mind that this enormous outpouring of dissatisfaction in this country that was sparked by the cold-blooded murder of George Floyd at the hands of Minneapolis PD is primarily about the reality of the lives of people of color living under this police state. Uh, so with that in mind, rather than hearing ourselves talk uh, about whatever, uh, we've got another friend of the show we would rather hear from, uh, someone who when running and nearly winning a seat on the city council last year did so very openly as a police abolitionist. Sean Scott, thank you so much for coming back on uh, as an organizer, a leader in your community. We want to hear what um, you are thinking about this right now. Yeah, well, it's uh, yeah. First of all, uh, thanks for, for having me back on and um, sending me the invite. I think it's just like you said in the, uh, the opening has really highlighted um, just the void of leadership that has existed at the federal level on this issue, um, including the Obama administration. I mean, people gave uh, Trump rightfully a lot of hell on social media for using coded language, calling um, protesters um, thugs. And it has been pointed out appropriately that that's actually language that um, President Obama had used in 2015 um, and actually doubled down on when pressed about it. So it, it just kind of highlights the need for leadership that we really have not seen at, at the federal level. And, you know, at the local level, this has really been as far as police brutality and, and um you know, if we're speaking euphemistically, police misconduct, quote unquote, this has been an issue that has been extant in Seattle. I mean, I would argue since the time that we've had a police force, but, you know, generationally, we're just we're talking about the fact that our the police department here has been under a consent decree, which is in essence a federal probe for eight years. I mean, if you have... Um, you know, any of your listeners have children that were born in 2013 or afterwards, they are younger than the federal probe that the Seattle Police Department has been under. And that has come about because of a pattern of a sustained pattern of racist policing, um, a number of deaths of primarily 
black, but also brown and poor white citizens. And, you know, it, this is, I think, the, the what really differentiates this moment from maybe other things that we've seen previously and other um, uprisings that we've seen previously is that every city has their story with um, police brutality, with police violence, with police resisting even moderate um, accountability reforms. And, you know, in, in lieu of there being no baseball, in lieu of there being no football, in lieu of there being no professional sports, I think you're starting to see like this is, you know, the, this sort of municipal uprising and all the passion that it has, you know, brought forward all the people that finally think that this is a chance to actually push the envelope and an issue that has gone ignored for too long. People are approaching it which, with much the same, um, you know, fervor and much the same um rigor and devotion is, you know, we're used to seeing white people with, you know, their professional sports teams and they riot all the time. I mean, the Seahawks win the Super Bowl in 2013 and um, summarily go about destroying property in um, Pioneer Square. And, you know, I don't remember there being anybody calling them necessarily thugs at that stage. And yet here we are, people actually taking action on um, trying to raise awareness with, with respect to police violence. And, um, you know, it, it looks like people's sympathies or some of the, the sympathies of those in power don't, don't extend to folks that care about police brutality. I think that's a pretty sad statement about um, just sort of where we're at at this point. Yeah. And, I, and if I can maybe jump in and ask you, um, you know, when you were running for city council, you uh, participated in the uh Spog council debate, right? Which I thought was actually a fucking good move. And oh, yeah. it's one of our favorite moments of the whole campaign. Absolutely. And when, you know, they had asked you, hey, you know, the, of course, bullshit question of uh, who are you going to call somebody shooting in your neighborhood? You responded, uh, well, is it some person or is it the cops? And of course, there was a lot of pearl clutching in the city, right? About, uh, you know, how could this council candidate insinuate that our beautiful police officers would do something bad? So in retrospect of just being uh, completely vindicated on this, uh, you know, what are, what are your sort of some thoughts on uh sort of the role of the council, you know, the council election in police reform, but also just the uh, maybe the changing attitude in the city towards SPD. Well, there was there was some baton clutching in the uh, in the room, if I remember uh, correctly. That was a brave um, ass fucking thing to say in that room. As much as I thought it was badass, I don't know that I could imagine myself saying it in that room. <laughs> bearding the lion in its den. Yeah. I mean, I think it's 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 one of those things where you don't you don't necessarily advocate for these issues because of like personally what they might, what they may or may not have done in the course of that campaign. I mean, looking back on it in a really close race, uh, it was divided, decided by 750 votes. Um, you know, you could make the case that having a more moderated stance on police injustice would have, um, appealed to a certain segment of voter that, wasn't necessarily ready to have a conversation about, about police abolition, but I think, you know, it, it just has to do with the fact that there were so many people who were already in district four who sent the campaign postcards and letters, sent me letters, handwritten letters personally saying that we need to see real movement on, um, again, even moderate police reform 
proposals like hiring more community service officers, which also would have been unionized, unionized members of the Seattle Police Officers Guild, um, you know, moving in the direction of basic police accountability reforms that even the ACLU um, has called for. You know, these are, I think, when you when you watch sort of images of, of downtown aflame and people breaking into, um, you know, cop cars where there are assault rifles and making a political point through property damage and saying that um, all of this military equipment that we see police, you know, sort of perusing our streets with, none of this is really, really for the people. And so there's an inherent social statement and an inherent symbolic statement in destroying tools of destruction. Those were points that people were trying to make in more moderate means through the course of elections, through peaceful protests that were also decried through all sorts of means. And you just sort of get to the point where you're like, well, if this is actually what it's going to take for people to, um, you know, power holders in the community to realize that maybe the police officers guild doesn't deserve to have a seat at the table with the rest of organized labor. So long as they're a beacon of white supremacy, or if this is what it's going to take for people to actually take, you know, the notion of community policing or, community service officers, I should say, more seriously, then you just have to do it by any means necessary. And you you're, you can't really be a power holder in this city who has shown no leadership on this issue, then turning around and critiquing the way that people are going about expressing their dissatisfaction, because um, that's just the way it goes. I mean, I think the right understands that really, really clearly. Um, they understand that law and the courts are great ways to obstruct and delay progress on building affordable housing. Um, they also understand physical intimidation has a role in American politics. Unfortunately, they have explored that option much more robustly than any progressive or anybody on the left has in this country. And, you know, here we are. Maybe this is actually going to be the thing that actually gets people to the point where they're going to sense the desperation around the issue. And, um, I guess that's what I hope ultimately comes out of it. But I mean, from a, as far as the personal vindication thing, I mean, it brings me absolutely no joy to see, you know, dozens of American cities, including Seattle, up in flames and to see people having to get up in the middle of a pandemic, risking their personal health, risking their lives to make a statement about this issue. I mean, it's, it's clear that nobody really, I mean, if anybody, y- y'all remember, I mean, just, just what the weather was like on Saturday morning. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. my God. Um, yeah. Yeah. And this, this feeling of, you see the clouds rolling in, it was just like this, so this is really going to be one of these kinds of days. And it just kept going from there. Um, so, you know, I hope that it, I, you know, I wish everybody who's out there, who's like, you know, protesting and, and demonstrating right now, like all the strength and solidarity in the world. And I hope that, here, here. you know, this is actually end up being the thing that, that, you know, moves the needle on this issue. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, um, obviously there is again, uh, you know, from our, our beloved mayor, lots of commentary about, uh, you know, this, this sort of bifurcation between peaceful protesters and violent protesters who, of course, are from the outside. You know, of course, every American city has them, but they're apparently from somewhere else. Uh, but, maybe another planet. I don't know. Um, well, it know. was, um, sorry, Brian, but it was, oh, it was uh, oh, the, 
mayor of Minneapolis or whatever, who was like, oh, every single arrest we made was from people from out of town. And then like the next day he came back and was like, oh, that information was actually incorrect. That's the information that I was briefed on from the police. Yeah. Well, and, you know, Mayor, Mayor Durkin had said that on Saturday and um, to her credit, I think Erica Barnett was the only journalist that actually asked her, like, what evidence do you actually have that people are being arrested from out of town? And she just said, well, I mean, that's like a feeling, you know, <laughs> like, basically just completely. Yeah. But I, I guess like what, what, you know, what are your thoughts on this? I, you, you know, we see a lot of liberal politicians, especially trying to create this, uh, this sort of uh, split, right? We have peaceful, good protesters and violent, bad protesters. I was and, curious what your thoughts. And occasionally, on that are. that's a racially tinged split, specifically uh, from Jenny Durkin, and this went viral nationally. Uh, she used that the general split narrative and wanted to point out that generally, the people causing doing the looting, causing the destruction, whatever, were white men. Um, an interesting. An interesting tactic. Yeah, would love to hear uh, what you think about that, John. Yeah, it was a it was a pretty surreal, um, you know, twist in logic. And I think anybody who watched Mayor Durkin's press conference and or Mayor Durkin's press conferences, I should say, the one that she's been ones that she's been holding with Seattle Police Chief Carmen Best, walks away with the impression. I mean, you can just see the political capital bleeding out of her mayorship by the second with every syllable, I think she gets closer and closer to being a one-term mayor. Um, the fact that, you know, she couldn't come up with a coherent response around why police were covering their, their badge numbers and deactivating their body cams saying that it actually had to do with the fact that Seattle PD has long stood against a surveillance state. And so this is why it actually <laughs> turned off their body cam. Like, she tried to say at one point that the badges were being covered to mourn um, fallen officers. Uh, Councilmember Mosqueda pointed out that the last officer slain in the line of duty in the city of Seattle was in 2009. Um, you know, and so these things, they sort of come up and you, it, it, it again is just sort of, um, I don't want to say that it's a lack of leadership. It's actually incorrect to say that because I think it has been leadership yeah. in the direction of um, increasing political impunity for the police. And as it turns out, collaboration with the Trump administration. Yes. I mean, Durkin has been ranting a lot about the, and taking the Twitter, I mean, you know, Twitter is for people like me who did not necessarily make it into office. And so you're trying to actually build political will and build a uh, chorus around issues that need to get highlighted. I'd like to think that if I were actually a sitting mayor, you'd have more on your plate than tweeting out how much you oppose Trump, especially when you're working with his department of justice to have um, the consent decree lifted so that Seattle police department can continue to kill black people with um, no consequences. Um, that's that's all stuff that you know she's in the middle of doing. So it's actually leadership in the incorrect direction. Um, and you know, knowing that she's also coordinating with mayors across the country and um, Mayor Garcetti and in, in LA and other mm -hmm. purportedly liberal liberal mayors across the country um, are using the same talking points, the same tactics, and it's coincidentally the same levels of brutality against protesters that we're seeing not just from liberal mayors, but also from Trump, who has resorted to uh, turning the lights out um, 
hiding in a bunker as the 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 protesters approach the National Mall. Um, pretty sad commentary for a guy that couldn't be be bothered to 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 wear a mask because of how big and bad and tough it it made him look. Um, so pretty sad, pretty sad stuff all around. Um, and I guess the the search for silver linings sort of begins at this stage, just as far as knowing that. Um, a lot of this is, I think, going to actually mean that you're going to see more elected officials at the local level. Some of them you're going to see, I mean, while we're talking about differentiating the good from the bad, it, that works for that logic works for elected officials and for Democrats. You're going to see some Democrats get to the point where they are able to feign compassion around this issue. I think there are going to be others that will actually take action. Um, and we're going to be the ones who get to judge their their efforts and their attempts and the fact that you know we have the power to get them out and set the agenda um, for, you know, what subsequent elections in, in the city anyway look like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, Cause it's not like the Democrats are running a, a presidential candidate. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's like, <laughs> I think it's very important what you're saying. Cause you know, we're seeing from democratic mayors and governors like mayor Jenny, we're seeing leadership, but also solidarity with each other and Trump. Uh, you know, we have, uh, uh, Garcetti in LA, who you mentioned, said this morning, basically, yes, we are coordinating. Democratic mayors around the country are coordinating the uh, this crackdown. Uh, you know, basically, Trump said, "Send in the National Guard uh, when the looting starts, the shooting starts," and all the Democratic mayors and governors in the country were like, "Yeah, yeah, please, the National Guard." Um, you know what I mean? What are we supposed to? What is anybody supposed to make of of this? Like, if you're, I mean, I guess the answer is is get into the streets. But I mean, you know, what else could you possibly make of this? Yeah, who know, Marina? Were you were you out there this weekend at all? I may or may not have been out there this weekend. <laughs> She's a very <laughs> close friend who was out there. Very close. Friend. Yeah, I, I might have been adjacent to being out there. <laughs> Maybe I've just been, you know, following updates every minute on Twitter. I don't know, you know, compo- compositing a very, I, I, uh, you know, yeah. Um, yeah, I was out there. It was, um, I think that the, I mean, the response, this Saturday was wild. Um, last night was a little less organized. Um, and uh, I think it ended in in a very like t- tactically not a good way. Um, but I, I mean, just seeing what's going on everywhere, it's the absolutely like coalescing of the you know ruling classes to protect themselves. You know what you're talking about with like Durkin and Garcetti and all of those like progressive mayors who are getting together. And it's Mm -hmm. funny if you actually go into like their comments on like the comments on what they're posting on, on Twitter, because like the conservatives are like, Oh, we're going to like vote you out. Like, blah, blah, blah. Like you guys are trash. Like, you know, you guys are so liberal and like, you know, you cucks and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, you know, you look at it from the left perspective and it's like basically hearing Joe Biden being like, well, why don't we train police to like shoot them in the leg instead? Like, you know, like it's, it's such a dichotomy to like watch on being so much farther left on this sphere of it mm-hmm. and watching it through this lens. It's, I don't know. It's fucking crazy. So we've got, 
we had Biden with the uh, the hairy leg a number of months ago, and now we've got him in the leg. This, um, this could be like a dementia just, thing, though. We don't know. He's <laughs> a leg obsession. I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, in any case, I mean, you know what you're saying, Marina. It's true of Joe Biden, and it's true of Jenny Durkin. They have no constituency whatsoever. No, they are hated by the right for insane, you know, because, you know, I mean, we're talking about lunatics and have no constituents constituency with anyone else. I mean, yeah, I, I think it's I don't think at this point, I don't think Marjani's going to run. Yeah. Durkin has entered into kind of the sort of political territory from which I think there's no coming back as far as um, electoral ambitions, because, I mean, if you were to look at the situation as recently as, you know, two weeks ago, the um, certainly not the consensus position on Durkin on the left, but I think citywide for maybe some voters that are, to put it frankly, affluent, low information voters, you're just sort of looking at, well, you know, Durkin stands for progressive-ish things. She opposes Trump and I oppose Trump. And she also seems amenable enough to the police and to small business to satisfy sort of that part of it. So I think, and 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 was able to sort of emerge from what was happening with COVID with the appearance of being a responsible bureaucrat. Oh, yeah. And... So her election, re-election chances, I think were, were, were probably never greater than they were about, about two weeks ago. She was ago. getting written up in Fortune um, and the New Yorker. Yeah, yeah. yeah, or even earlier in the, in the week. And, and, and now you're, you know, with, with, with just the, the tremendous mishandling of what happened with the demonstrations over the weekend. And by mishandling, I mean, I think the correct stance would have been to just let protesters protest, let people publicly mourn, because that was clearly what this was about. Um, managed to actually alienate a lot of um, labor progressives and labor Democrats who recognized that um, they were sort of sold a false bill of goods with the Durkin mayorship. And then also has pissed off a bunch of people on the right. So it's like, where do you where do you kind of go from that from that point forward? So when I look at you know Durkin crying oh during God. the um, ending her during the press took place, yeah, I, I really saw her more as mourning um, her political career than she was mourning anything that had to do with Black Lives because it's it's over at this stage. I think you know electoral work has its limitations certainly. But I think that there is a real opportunity for, um, you know, a real coalition to get built to usher somebody into office who's going to be like just a lot better on these issues. I don't know who that candidate is going to be. I don't know what they're going to decide to do. But like, I think if somebody were to step forward to saying like, look, systemically, these are issues that we need to absolutely, you know, being addressed, have addressed in the city if we're as progressive as we say we are. Um, I think Durkin is absolutely toast. Yeah. Well, well I, I don't think she was even feigning like tears for black lives. She was explicitly talking about, she was tearing up talking about broken windows and like handbags and, and perfume from Nordstrom. But, but yeah. you know, uh, more than that, I mean, this is a conversation to get into. I mean, police abolition, what does this look like? I think this, I mean, what I don't want to predict what's going to come of this in socially, politically, whatever. But like, I think at the very least, you know, it puts that pretty much front and center. 
Um, and you have in this city, and I think I I think it's generally like this everywhere. Um, you know, Jenny Durkin on Saturday uh, put out that curfew order at 5.04 for a five o'clock curfew. And the next day in the press conference said, when asked about this said, well, well, we did that at the recommendation of SPD so that they could arrest who they wanted to basically explicitly saying like the cops run this town. We just take orders from them as if there's a, uh, just a technocratic body of experts for controlling populations. And now as much as we can sit here and say, you know, how like feckless and deplorable and sick that is for our mayor to just sort of blindly take orders from them. And as much as we would like to have someone in that office who would be uh, vocal about pushback against um, advice from SPD and, you know, but what is it possible that, I mean, what does that really look like? Because ultimately these people, I mean, if this, is making anything clear to average Americans who are tuning in. These people are a deranged, uh, violent cult. I'm talking about cops. Um, they've got the guns and I mean, should we not be considering like that? They're basically holding city halls hostage all over America. Yeah. I mean, I, it, it was, it was amazing seeing the, uh, the curfew handed down 15 minutes before it was supposed to, to take effect. Um, it makes you, you know, think that you know maybe if if we actually had the uh, the, the the biking infrastructure and the the, the transit that the Durkin campaigned on and, and subsequently betrayed, it would be possible to get out of downtown with the with, with fifteen minutes notice. Yes. Um, it, other, you know, absent that, I think it was it was pretty clear that what that was all about was um, just as you said, the the police chief sort of um, handing down to the to the mayor or asking the mayor for a political gift. Um, and receiving it, and that's what solidarity looks like mm-hmm. um, in 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 those terms. If you can speak that way about that that kind of a transaction, the conversation about abolition. My memory of um, how this sort of issue came about in the city council races. I mean, there were people who were abolitionists who have been doing great work since before anybody, you know, ran for office last year. I mean, you think of no new youth jail, you think about, Mm -hmm. um, you know, Nikita Oliver's campaign for mayor in 2017, I think was some of the first to bring up these issues in the, in the the current iteration of Seattle politics. Um, and so it was just kind of building off of a framework that I think a lot of them had established and saying, look, in the same way that we had had an abolitionist movement in the 1860s to end slavery, if you, you know, keep up with current events, you understand that most of contemporary policing and the prison industrial complex is a link back to slavery um, and that slavery was abolished in this country, except where it could be meted out as punishment for a crime mm-hmm. so that the carceral state has deep ties, both historic and psychological. And as it turns out, material to, um, you know, a slave economy with Washington state prisoners manufacturing personal protective equipment in the midst of a pandemic. Um, Those are issues that I think we're obviously at a very different political reality on the surface now than we were seven months ago. But I think the the underlying structural issues and the threat of 
of um, police violence, which is, you know, just looms so large for so many communities. I think people are are maybe looking at the TV screen now and saying, oh, actually, we kind of get it in ways that they didn't when they were just seeing, you know, two candidates talk casually about whether or not um, racism was bad enough to actually do anything about with respect to curbing police spending. And well, one candidate says it is and the other says it's not. And so it's just kind of this, you know, polite procession of this conversation that we're going to get ready to have. It took, it took, I think it's going to take a certain amount of action for people to get to the point where they realize maybe this isn't an academic discussion. Maybe, you know, I, as a, as a voter in Wedgwood don't understand all of the resonances behind this issue. Um, but it seems like the people that are saying we should abolish the police are saying we should also redirect some of that funding to things that are probably going to help me, like, I don't know, afford childcare or have housing mm-hmm. or yeah. any of those issues. So you know, hopefully those links are starting to become some clear for some people um, as a result of what's happened the last three days. And if, and if they're not clear, I think we know why. Yeah. Sean, yeah. I have a question for you. So as someone who ran on yeah. a police abolition like platform, like, you know, this is the very, very common question that a lot of leftists get who are, you know, I mean, we're seeing a lot, I've, I'm, I've been seeing in the last couple of days, a lot more like liberal platforms that are saying defund the police, which is, which is great. That's a great movement a push towards the left, like the New York Times posted an op-ed that was like, let's defund the police, you know, demilitarize. I'm seeing that word float around a lot. But when you really push for that abolishment of the police, um, and then you get the pushback, those questions of like, well, who will keep us safe? What do we do about thieves and murderers and rapists? Like, what do you, as someone who runs on that platform and has a very kind of formulated idea about that. Like what is your usual response for something like that? Yeah. Well, I think the, uh, the, if you want to just, if, if you really take the, the discussion to this point, you look at the fact that let's say, you know, you're somebody on, um, you know, UW campus who has been a victim of harassment or who has been stalked or, um, so many young people who, you know, are, are having conversations around very, very sensitive conversations around consent right now, because um, if not somebody that they know, then they themselves have direct experience with sexual assault. Like what structures do you actually have in place to address these sorts of issues? It was a question that came up a lot in the course of the campaign. And I would always, and I guess this is the way that I feel about it now still is is just sort of bring up the fact that it's not like the carceral state is already doing such a great job handling these issues as it is, right? I mean, if um, you're somebody who is um, suffering harassment, the state, as it's currently set up, places a much higher burden of proof on people who have been wronged than the people who are actually going about perpetrating some of these crimes. So that when we talk about um, abolition, we're talking about reimagining what it actually looks like to have structures in place that address and deal with those sorts of issues in a way that's a lot more um, effective at rehabilitating um, people that have committed such crimes in the past and also protecting people from them in the present. Um, you know, we, yeah, so that's, that's kind of the way that, that I end up looking at it. And, you know, it's, it's also the case that we have a number of functions that right now the, the police and police departments across the country are not, um, really fit to serve in. And, you know, if, if, if what 
you know, the police force is actually there for is the raw exercise of brute force in the event that you have somebody carrying a knife or, you know, wielding a gun or whatever the case might be, then we should say that. And then we should scale back everything that policing does to make sure that, hey, this is the responsibility that you've got in this particular, very, very small, very, very um, not at all common um, sort of scenario. Whereas I think the point that abolitionists are making really has more to do with the fact that there are a bunch of things that are happening every day that the police are dealing with and coming into them with an over with a, a militarized and over aggressive mindset. Um, and if you guys are just, you know, B level armed forces, then just be frank and say that don't also try to say that you're here to be social workers, because I think that's the, the argument that's made for having a public safety quote unquote budget that exceeds 50% of Seattle's general fund so that we can't actually afford um, any of the basic, you know, sort of social needs that we've got. Um, so I guess that's kind of the way that I think about it. Yeah. And I mean, um, I remember 10 years ago, just randomly coming across an issue of the uh, Portland Scanner, which is a black newspaper in Portland that's like, let's just say not a Maoist paper. It's like a, a business paper, a solidly like black middle class paper, but a giant front page editorial saying, you know, have an emer- having an emergency, don't call the police, right? And it was about mm-hmm. this um, murder of an individual who, you know, his, uh, I think, parents had called the police because they said he was suicidal and then the police murdered him, you know? Um and it's it's this thing I remember at the time thinking like, yeah, totally. But also it seemed like so shocking to see this on a, you know, in a newspaper stand, like walking on the streets in Portland. Um, but it feels like it's not that shocking anymore of a position. Right. I mean, do you feel like maybe something's changed, like just in the general, like talking to normies or whatever, that something has changed in the perception of the police. I mean, even after this weekend, I'm just watching, you know, police cars run people over and stuff like that. Uh, do you feel like something's different now yeah i mean it it seems to me like the um the opinion of of defunding the police and and having people take a a second look at just sort of what their you know given localities whether it's their city or their state or their county's budgetary decisions look like with respect to over investing in policing at the expense of affordable child care social housing or transit I mean, that seems to be an idea that really rapidly has entered into um, the mainstream of American life to the point where you've got CoStar, uh, you know, the astrology app tweeting about it <laughs> at the stage. Um, and my CoStar was going nuts. The other you know, day. It was telling me to like learn how to give myself a tattoo. I think quarantine was getting to it anyway. <laughs> yeah, CoStar, I saw a tweet that said something to the impact of CoStar wakes up every day and chooses violence. Um and, you know, very, very punchy stuff coming out of it. But, yeah, they recently tweet um, abolish the police or, I think, defund the police. So it's not to say that these are going to be, you know, that's a stance that, you know, the average person is going to offhand agree with. But we're already to the point where I think people are able to see the logic of it. And then I think when you you give people the opportunity to say, hey, look, do you really see a need for your given city to be spending, you know, 15 percent of its budget on on a health and human services or like 5% of its budget on the arts, but 50% on, 
on policing, just like does that just on the face of it make a lot of sense? And I don't think I think we're we're at a stage now where, where where the average person would probably tell you just based off of events that we've seen over the last two or three days that it's not uh, it's no longer really tenable um, for us to be doing that. Well, Sean, thank you so much for coming on and sharing that with us. Um, you know, solidarity to everyone out there and to all the communities affected um, by policing in this country. Um, yeah, thank you, Sean. Really appreciate you coming on and talking to us um, because I know, uh, you know, everyone listening will appreciate hearing uh, where you're at on this stuff. And uh, we always like having you on. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Thanks, Sean. Absolutely. Y'all, y'all uh, take care. I'll see you on uh, see you on the Twitterverse. All right. All right Stay man. safe out there. Yeah. Have a good night. Okay. Um, yeah. Thank you again to Sean Scott, a uh, friend of the show. Um saying some really important things there. Um, yeah. Uh, by the way, uh, district four and all of our listeners. So I told to illegally vote in district four, that's the city. You could have him on the city council right now. Yes. You fucks are. Yeah. I mean, Hey, we've got about 750 listeners. Probably. Well, we have 100 listeners, but I told them that they should all vote illegally 10 times. Yeah. Which yeah, yeah. Should have been a fucking landfall. win. I mean, did they not yeah. vote by mail? Cause that's clearly the most illegal way you can vote. Well, I told everybody go to Laurelhurst, get into those mailboxes, take out the ballot, all right, yeah. fill it out, mail it up. And I think about That's now, two for one. hearing um, Alex Peterson say this morning, I think uh, I'm a true ally. Um, I think you're all regretting not committing massive voter fraud. Okay, <laughs> uh, fuck you for not stealing that election for Sean Scott. You know, it's like they tell you in sports. Uh, cheating's part of sports, and if you're mad about it, you should get good at it, all right? <laughs> like, don't be a baby. Get to cheating. <laughs> Seriously. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, um, I thought the interesting... So on Saturday night, me and Greg got back after being uh, good little boys and not doing anything bad downtown. Mm-hmm. We got back to the house, and... Uh, yeah, you because know, Greg has to live with me now because he sunk his boat. Oh, is that why we're <laughs> yeah. in the same house? Yeah, Greg has destroyed his yeah, boat. Yeah, hell of a time. Hell anymore. of a time. All right, um, I'm now, later, and, but we'll figure this out. I want to hear about this. Antifa <laughs> has been declared a terrorist organization, so I expect the feds um, to be showing up at my various addresses at any moment <laughs> um, looking for its leader. Uh, and uh <laughs> Greg right now is regretting naming his boat Lady Antifa. <laughs> <laughs> luckily, luckily, they won't find me at any of those addresses. But on the other hand, I also do not at this moment have a current getaway home. You know, <laughs> like I don't have a home that I can just sail away um, soon. It'll be up and running again soon. But um I got to get through the project I'm on now and then fix the fuel leak. So yeah, we got, we got some time before I'm like ready to like, uh, uh, sail over the Alps, like the Von Trapps. <laughs> well, well, Greg plots his escape. Uh, we did, uh, you know, get cozy on the couch and watch Jenny Durkin's press conference. <laughs> and, and I did, yeah. And I just thought like getting some of the, I mean, there was some stuff on here that I thought was kind of like interesting and, and worth talking about. I mean, 
we talked a little about the ads, outside agitators thing, but they had this interesting moment where they asked about the infamous M16 incident where, uh, you know, the protesters took the M16 out of the back of a car. And But it, there was, it, it produced an interesting moment in the press conference where some reporter asked, uh, you know, Mayor Jenny if the gun was loaded, to which she gave her usual just blank stare <laughs> and then kind of looked over at the police and asked, you know, do you know if the gun was loaded? And the police just shrugged their shoulders and she turned back and said, oh, we don't know. And just <laughs> moved on. I was curious what people, what people want to make of that. That's, well, I uh, mean, an obvious follow-up question might have been in any kind of, if we, if there's any kind of like press that wanted to like do their job at all and weren't just like on the edge of their seat waiting for an opportunity to uphold the prerogatives of the police state, they might have said something like, you know, the very non-aggressive basic question of, well, what's the policy on keeping guns loaded in the back of uh, cruisers? <laughs> like, and then they'd have then it'd have been like a replay and another blank stare, another awkward look over to her left to the uh, one of the the chief she had with her, and another uh, we had, we don't know, but that at least would have been like something. So, uh, Marina, if, uh, if an M16 is taken out of the back of a police car by some civilian live on camera and it's very scandalous and you ask the police if the gun was loaded and they just shrug their shoulders and say they don't know, what do you think? Do you think the gun was loaded? I mean, isn't that the whole thing about, like, having it easily accessible, like calling it a shotgun? You know? like Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's, it's like- you know what that reminds me of? That reminds me of Jumanji when the monkeys are in the cop car and they're playing with the rifle that's in the, the, the shotgun. <laughs> oh, and they and blow the oh, lights yeah, off the top. Exactly. That's exactly what that <laughs> Yeah. Hell yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it's one of those funny things. Like, you know, if, if the police, if SPD's policy was, and keep in mind, we're talking about assault rifles. It's not like an everyday thing they have, right? But every police car has one. If, uh, if the policy was to keep it unloaded, you know they would have said something. Yeah. So that can only mean that the policy is that they keep them loaded. Right. Or that they have no policy. (laughs) Which means that they're loaded. (laughs) Which also means definitely loaded. Well, anyway, we do know it was loaded, or at least that the mag was right there, because the first guy, I've seen multiple reports, I haven't seen video of this, but I've seen multiple people saying they witnessed the first dude took it out and did the coolest possible thing, which was back up a few feet from the cruiser and shoot it with the gun. <laughs> One of the heroes of the last few days. But then you know, so, uh, along with the pot, along with the cheesecake uh, gal. Oh, hell yeah, dude. Um, cheesecake forever. Absolute hero. And not in Seattle, but the guy who stole a police horse. Fuck in it. Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, maybe the funniest video I've ever seen. I mean, we all were watching it, like, I think at different times in the house, just, like, laughing, like... Maniac. Yeah. And the, the... There have been a lot of, you know, a lot of this is very... It's very serious and it's very tense, and it's... And people are getting hurt, um, but, man, there are some moments, um, and that guy riding that horse man just to think about it my heart swells yeah. <laughs> well, none of us will ever know pure joy like that no and i will say like the cheesecake factory while i'm not necessarily a fan of their food the cheesecake is good i, mean, I was kind of sad that i, I was I not mean, a sarah lee cheesecake. frozen cheesecake is good okay yeah. all cheesecake all good. is yeah. good 
yeah, the gun thing I think was interesting because uh, you know while people were focusing on, you know, one I think the various conspiracies of whether the weapon was like planted there. I mean, I, I think that every I think, the, I think the cars were planted there. Yeah, every yeah every police car keeps one, but I think that the question it was interesting. There no reporter thought to ask or even comment about like, okay, we gave the cops all this weaponry like M16s and whatnot. Uh, isn't this just like? proof on film that they are not like uh trustworthy stewards of this weaponry and that it should be taken away from them like tonight <laughs> immediately right like <laughs> so what you're saying is there's an assault rifle in every cop car <laughs> and at a time of uh civil unrest they were just parking a bunch of them where basically like military style weapons were one like smash and grab away from anybody i mean that's basically what this is and yeah i think i think i also absolutely believe they left those cars there on purpose um and you know and they did that knowing they had those weapons in them so oh i will say spd about 10 years ago uh drove a car through downtown with their assault rifle on the trunk of the car because they had it out for reasons the officer couldn't remember oh man but he he just left it sitting on the trunk and was just driving around until some cyclist came up and was like, dude, there's like a fucking machine gun on your trunk. <laughs> oh, this is why they needed to move to the explorers from the Crown Vicks, yeah, right? Not Nothing, trunk no trunks to leave your junk on. Yeah, probably. So I thought the other like interesting thing that just be kind of curious, um, when asked about, uh, again, a reporter asked, why SPD had covered up all their badge numbers on their badges, right? They had very consciously put black tape over their badge mm-hmm. numbers for the protests. Uh, Mayor Jenny said, uh, those are mourning badges, and then proceeded like, to her for um, reasons I'm, I'm not entirely sure, just started going M-O-U-R like she was in a spelling bee. <laughs> um, I, mean, I was curious y'all's thoughts on this. Well, I mean, she, what she said was like, well, uh, you know, my understanding, blah, 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 those that's a sign of mourning, a traditional sign of mourning. And it's like, how fucking dumb do you think people are? Yes. I mean, this is it's so simple. Yes. They all used their uh, black or black with the blue thin, mm-hmm. thin blue line ba- bands that are for that purpose to put <laughs> a little black uh, mourning band around their badge. But they all that does not address who that's all your all that is what kind of ribbon did they use? What you know, what color tie were they wearing? No one gives a shit. It's what they were doing with it, which was uh, uniformly covering their badges, which means basically an order came down. Cover your badges and turn off your body cams. yeah, enter up the yeah. body cams. I mean, well, I've that seen was people, for uh, security reasons because they're very. I don't know. I've seen people defending that yeah. as like advice that the ACLU has endorsed, and yeah. I I don't know. I, I mean, that I think is more nebulous. I'm not whatever. I don't know. I don't know enough. But the the bans on the the badge numbers is obviously completely egregious and obviously totally coordinated and um. You know, you don't have to be if even if you're Jenny Durkin and you want to uphold. I mean, that just shows the total subservience, which is why I just think like at some at what to at what level is just just a hot, a willing hostage situ- situation. I mean, I think it's where she wants to be is in that room with a gun to her head. But 
that's also where she's at. Like, and that's where a lot of mares are at. I mean, to come out and say something so fucking dumb like that, when all you had to say was like, we'll look into it. And then that could have been an easy thing. Could have been an easy thing to actually push back on the cops for this sort of blanket thing that everyone did. So you can, I mean, you're not going to discipline every cop. Like, it's such a dumb thing to say to have like no self-respect and no political backbone to push back against the cops, even the tiniest bit. Well, no, because the police are there, you know, to quote unquote, serve and protect. So if they go against this like protective force, then it's just going to be God forbid, you know, like terror and anarchy in the streets, you know, but when it is the police who are inciting the violence, like every fucking time, like that, that police officer, I think his name is Campbell or whatever that maced the little girl or whatever. Yeah. Luckily, yeah. I mean, they, they can cover their badge numbers or anything, but we have their faces. They are our public record, you know, which is, I mean, thank mm-hmm. God, but. Well, luckily they were owning us by not wearing a uh, mask or whatever, you know, so we had better face shots. of them. Right. Thank goodness. But it's just like one of my one of my comrades says it like perfectly when he's like the liberals of the city will always choose to protect big businesses and rich zip codes. And we live in an area where brown and black and Asian people are disproportionately arrested and killed. And the liberals did nothing for Sandra Bland or any of them. And they will do no long that they will not do any long lasting change for George Floyd. Like we have to come together as citizens and think of new ways to live. Um, I should say they, not they, my comrade, they said this. Um, Yeah. Well, and I think it's interesting that, um, you know, we have this thing where, you know, Mayor Durkin, along with like Garcetti in New York, or I'm sorry, Garcetti in LA, de Blasio in New York, uh, the mayor of Minneapolis, apparently, but like all these blue, you know, Democrat mayors had given this like very, you know, oh, this the death of George Floyd is very concerning. You know, this, these police officers need to, you know, like that we really have a problem with racism and police. And not a day or two later, every single one of those mayors was calling out, you know, literally the fucking National Guard on their own population. And um, I think yeah. it was it was it was just liberalism in a nutshell, right? right? Well, none of them actually have any control. Yeah, and I think that's something that we should get into, actually. Um, by the way, I, I, I just saw this uh, earlier today and thought it worth bringing up. You know, uh, Maybe this explains why they were covering up their badge numbers. Uh, so apparently, as of you know, early Monday, uh, 12,000 complaints have been filed against SPD over the last two days. <laughs> Holy shit. You know, at that point, you know, I mean... They're going to probably keep doing it, but the, I mean, at what point do you have to drop the bad apples thing, right? But, um, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, we haven't really, we've sort of been talking about all this with the assumption that everybody kind of knows, yeah. but like, you know, uh, should cover a few basic points here. Cops start all riots. Yeah. Uh, except as Sean mentioned, sports yeah, riots. Um, yeah. Just the one kind of riots that are not started well, by cops. The riots ever. that anybody in America cares about. And, yeah. and, 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 and to sort of add on to Greg's point here, that actually is not like a, a lefty viewpoint. That's a literally just understood fact of criminology. Like it goes all the way back to the Kerner Commission in 68 
that it's just understood that the police actually start all riots. Uh, I mean, that's yeah. that's if you're in an academic circle who and we're actually studying policing, uh, you would not have to debate this question. Yeah. This is just uh, it's like gravity makes things fall down, you know, all this kind of stuff. And and we know this has been the case around the country. But we certainly know here I was standing and watching literally facing that direction on fifth and Westlake. We were, we were at fifth and Westlake, right? When it went off. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We were standing there on Saturday shortly, really like as the, as the event was getting going, as the speakers were starting or maybe just before, just after totally peaceful protest, people standing around, not a, no windows have been broken, no nothing. And the cops for no fucking reason out of nowhere started rolling uh, flashbangs and tear gas. And you know, that's, and then we, we know we've seen again around the country, but we've seen, I, there's video of SPD breaking windows. Yeah. Um, oh, the target window. So after hours, did you see that one? Yeah. 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 yeah, 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 yeah. They're just there um, busting windows. Like, Oh, the protesters did this. Yeah. And you know, the, I don't know. I, you know, media has been saying some things that is fucking shocking to me. Um, but I still, you know, it would still shock me that, um, if anyone actually like showed that video and reported this stuff on, on, in the mainstream press, but this is what's happening. This is what always, and this is nothing new. This is a, there, this is a new scale to protests that we haven't seen, you know, in our lifetimes. Um, and, it is, you know, it's this perfect confluence of these are uprisings specifically related to police brutality. And that is putting the cops clearly um, on edge and they're just like leaning into it and they're showing their tactics. And this is what they do. They turn peaceful protests into chaos um, and they instigate violence and they uh, cause destruction and and frame the populace for it. So that is what is happening in Seattle. We know this. We've seen it. I literally have personally seen. I literally personally on Saturday saw them start this shit um, with, when nothing was happening at all uh, for no reason. And um, you know that's that's totally to be expected. Uh, you know, I did the march today. Today's Monday. I was down there. You know. Uh, and that, uh, at least up to the point um, uh, that I was there, you know, was totally peaceful. But it was also very clear that the march had been co- is clear to everyone there. Uh, this is sort of obliquely implied by the apparent organizers and speakers. But it was certainly clear that SPD knew the route of the march and was basically cooperating. So, no, there was no they didn't start any shit. When I was there, I don't know what has happened afterward as we've been recording this, but uh, yeah, that that's basically what's going on in this city right now. What really just like absolutely tickles me is like um, lately I've been re- getting a lot into um, social ecology, which is a new branch of leftism that I haven't really come across yet. Um, but the last couple of months I've, I've been delving into it a lot more with some comrades. Um, if you are not familiar with, uh, social ecology, I highly recommend you Google Murray Bookchin. Um, fantastic, fantastic ideology. Um, that basically says that 
all social crises are rooted in ecological crises and vice versa. And what I think is fucking hilarious right now is that you have an unemployment rate, which is absolutely like incredibly out the ass high. Um, and the government commits, well, the, you know, the police commit this horrible, horrible crime that pulls people out in the streets and the government had a chance to keep everybody complacent and keep everybody at home by providing basic needs for people to keep us at home during this quarantine. And they didn't, not only could they, they, it's not that they couldn't, but they refused to. And so you have these people who are angry, they are scared, they're low on money, you know, and now they're fucking they're also, they've also got free time. Yeah, and now you have a lot of people who have that fucking time to go out. Like, I haven't heard a single one of those, like, oh, you should get some jobs, you dumb liberals. Like, I haven't heard that fucking once, these protests. Which yeah. Is um, because guess what? Nobody has a fucking job right now because of this coronavirus. And um, which also, like, you know, brings me into this other part of like Marxism where it's like, of course, because capitalism has to thrive off of unemployment. It has to thrive off a certain level of unemployment and also by its very nature has to create the tools that will destroy it. And here we are in this situation where it has absolutely created a a massive amount of people who are at like uh, in unrest that are now taking to the streets and setting shit on fucking fire because we're done. Yeah. Well, this, yeah, this is end stage shit. You know, this is like fall of empire yeah. shit. When, when the systems for saying no to the population have been perfected so well and so thoroughly ingrained into like a political class that they can't see past them to actually make the smarter move and say yes once in a while to preserve their own power. I mean, yeah, it's insane. I mean, absolutely. The the response to coronavirus, the un, the and the economic uh, fallout of it, uh, it totally totally unforced error, totally unnecessary. But uh, it's what it's what our entire political class has been trained to do. It's why the people who are in power are in power. It's because they're the ones who believe you have to keep saying no uh, to a population and oppressing a population for the prerogatives of capital. So like. That's the only playbook they've got. Uh, there's no, there's no like, there's no. Um, these people are kind of these people are stupid, you know. Like they just know how to do their part in this system, and the system is basically running on rails into the a side of a mountain. And yeah, I mean, as I'm, all the deprivation and hardship that people are going through are certainly a factor in all this. But I mean, at the end of the day. Uh, you know, amateurs talk strategy, uh, <laughs> professionals talk logistics, man. It's fucking manpower. People don't have jobs, so they don't – usually our whole economic system keeps people engaged in drudgery for most of their fucking lives so that they can't – this is like – this is one of the hardest parts of organizing and getting people out of the street is like people have shit to do. Right. Well, they ain't got shit to do. And even if you don't have shit to do, you're fucking tired or you have to like – Clean yeah. your house yeah. or go to the store or fucking do laundry. Like, yeah, yeah, or just you just want to sit for a minute. Like, if the government hadn't been supplying us everything we needed to stay home comfortably for the quarantine, and we saw this on our TV, I guarantee half, half of the fucking people would have been like, oh, that's shitty, you know, like, and the numbers would not have been nearly as high. But you have every 
or done what or done what was necessary to have a much shorter quarantine right. like plenty of other other countries have managed with massive testing and and public health services right. you know but we're now the so, whole but, country yeah. is underserved now we're fucking pissed and they basically like I've heard multiple people refer to this as like now Archduke Ferdinand has just been assassinated. Yeah, well, and I mean, um, uh, earlier today on on Democracy Now, uh, the uh, professor Kianga Yamada tailored basically brought this point up and said, like, you know, uh, they're trying to drive some sort of divide and talk about like outside white agitators or whatever, which is like, you know, the broad like white support and these you know, uh, sort of uprisings is important because it's acknowledging an, a, a fact, right? The capitalist class had like sort of built this white allyship through handing out, you know, patronage. But now the, you know, like the white, you know, life expectancy is going down. Uh, the, you know, the pay, the, the pay has gone down, all that kind of stuff. It's like, you know, they basically, uh, even their allies, the capitalist class have built in the working class, they are losing, piece by piece, right? right. I mean, yeah. and we have ourselves in a situation like it was in the, I mean, this was the exact same thing that was happening in the 70s, which is they had all this, as they called it at the time, social dynamite on the street, which is people who are unemployed or underemployed, who don't want to live in the old way anymore and can't do it, and so are becoming politically active. And the solution was to go from, you know, a prison population of 400,000 to a prison population of 3 million, you know. Um, but at some point, even that's not sustainable. I mean, you can't, where are they going to put 6 million people in prison now? Like, I mean, you you used to have to staff that, you have to run it. Like, you know, it, it uh, sort of capitalism is getting hung by its own uh, you know, contradictions, I guess I would right. say. Yeah, well, I mean, for the long, you know, the the power structure in this country has been always explicitly racialized. And that, you know, for a lot of America's history, really disgustingly prevented a solidarity between, you know, white people and people of color in this country. Um, you know, there are moments when uh, a solidarity of that type has been attempted and gained crown, but... Um, you know, if they're going to, if they're, they're going to lose that edge if they um, just let, uh, let that system fall apart. Well, I think oh, that, sorry, Brian, you go ahead. Oh, no, go, okay. ahead go ahead. Well, I was going to say, we really lost footing when we lost the Irish, you know, when they all got indoctrinated <laughs> on the East Coast over into the, into the police forces. That was like a huge footing that revolutionary forces lost because the Irish had been ostracized from the other white cultures you know, mm-hmm. as being quote unquote, like not white or like coming from impure sources or whatever. Um, but as soon as the railroads, you know, in, in, on the East coast in the early days of the United States, there are documented letters of like wives of people who ran railroads and mining and all that kind of shit. And they were like, um, the Irish and the Chinese and the black people, like their solidarity is too fucking strong and we need to break this up. And so they are just like, Hey, Irish people, like you're actually white. Like, don't you want to help us? And that's why there's so many fucking like all of the police forces over in like Boston and like over on these, like, like all those areas are so, full of Irish people is because they were brought into that. It's just lopping off the top of this revolutionary force and, and, and removing it and giving just enough people enough to have that American dream life. And then letting them in turn, turn around and quash 
whatever rebellion that they were at one time fighting for. And also to speak on that whole, like, oh, a lot of these agitators are white. Like this is a Black Lives Matter protest. Like, but you're seeing all these white bodies that are doing all these things. One, I was having this conversation with a couple other like anarchists and it was like, I mean, obviously here in Seattle and Washington, it's predominantly white. Like we do live in the Pacific Northwest. Like that's an undeniable. <laughs> Always funny when people make that comment about Seattle. They're like, right. oh man, it's so white. Down there. I'm like, motherfucker, you're in Seattle. Right. I don't know what to tell you. I mean, besides like, the Filipino population, which is, this is the largest like concentration of Filipinos outside the Philippines. But, mm-hmm. um, the reason, like you see more of these like white bodies out there in these confrontations because when they're there for solidarity, like usually white people can afford to be in these demonstrations. They're, you know, like you have a lot of people of color and black people who like want to be a part of that, but they're scared. Like I've talked to a lot of black people, a lot of friends of mine who are like, yeah, I want to go out there, but like, I don't want to be another statistic. Like I can't afford that. I like, if I get caught it's too much. And when we were there on Saturday, there was this woman on the microphone. I don't know if you heard her, but she was like, white bodies to the front. I need white bodies to the front. You know, I need you guys there. If you, um, if, or I should say they, cause I don't really know what her pronouns were, but, or what their pronouns were. Um, but you know, they were like, if you wanted to see black people get killed, you didn't have to get out of your bed, but you're here. I want white bodies to the front. And white people have that privilege to take that extra risk. They have that privilege to be at the front. They have that privilege to even like maybe take the day off work or get arrested, or they have somebody to watch their kids, you know, if they do decide to participate in these actions, which is a really important delineation. And all this bullshit about like, oh, they're outside agitators. Like Seattle is a city of fucking transplants. Like we have all of these people who move here, a lot of major cities because of capitalism, because people have to move out of their dying rural fucking areas and move to cities where they can have a job and actually make a living and like live in an apartment that they pay too much fucking money for. They have to move here. Like that is why, you know, and it's just, sorry. <laughs> yeah. And I think, I think the thing is, is that on the left, you know, uh, if we want to build working class movements, we can't, uh, shy away from the, uh, like the one, the idea and the reality of, uh, multiracial organizing, which is what you really saw downtown was like, yeah, yeah I see a lot of white people. I also see a lot more black people than you normally see in Seattle. I see a lot more like Asian people than you normally see oh, yeah. about Seattle. Like what I see is what actually looks, what it looks like when I go into like, uh, machine shops and stuff like that. And the exurbs here, which is, I see what the working class looks right. like. Um, and it's this interesting thing. And I think it goes back to this point of, uh, you know, the capitalist class plays this game. It tries to pit everybody against each other. But neoliberalism has uh, just, it's taken away all the carrots, right? So it's not just that, like, the lot of white people has gotten worse. So they, you know, are now having a lot more sympathy with, uh, uh, you know, people on the bottom. It's that, like, if you're talking to, like, Latin populations, you know, there was a promise at one point of at least partial assimilation. And now we have fucking ice concentration. I mean, for 10 years, we had ice concentration <sighs> camps, you know, you know, these sort of terrorist roving gangs, like going house to house, rounding up kids in school and shit. And it's like, you know, they took that shit away. I think, you know, yeah. uh, so I think just all around, like, you know, uh, neoliberalism convinces the capitalist class they're invincible, it convinces they can win on culture. Right. And so they pull all the carrots away and I think they're starting to find that, uh, you know, maybe some people are finding some unity downtown at some of these events. Yeah, yeah well, more and more. Right. 
people oh, are that's the most terrifying thing they can imagine yeah well i hope so more and more yeah people are seeing that there is no future under the current system wherever they're currently at yeah. and whatever else what what concessions or whatever other movement may come of these uprisings i think the the i feel you know in this moment anyway, i feel right now like the 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 biggest thing to hope for would be the beginning of a broad multiracial solidarity that can be organized in this country. Yeah. And I think that is what we are seeing. Whatever people want to say about, you know, do people trying to divide all these lines. Yeah. Like we said, between violent and nonviolent between, you know, the, uh, uh, the, white instigators versus the uh i implicitly i guess the valid concerns of people of color who you're supposed to ignore by concentrating on the white instigators i mean people want to split uh that solidarity up and i think the most important thing is to uh cultivate that solidarity right. mm-hmm. an open communication um i had another comrade who was talking to me and they were like you know the broader communication the broader the communication between the protesters the better for uh, consent like getting group consent also is like really important because hierarchy can only duplicate hierarchy you know um so organizing horizontally and like getting consent amongst your peers on what your demands are you know and creating a vision for you for what you want um, I got sent the demands from the Minneapolis Transit Union, which is prosecute the police, immediately arrest and charge the four officers involved in the murder of George Floyd, justice for George Floyd, um, mass coordinated protests and days of action that involve youth and working class people, especially people of color, in the planning and mobilization, no trust in Mayor Frey or Trump's FBI launch um, or Trump's FBI launch an elected community-led restructuring of the Minneapolis Police Department with real teeth, including hiring, firing, reviewing budget priorities, and the power to subpoena. You know. Yeah, and I think you know. So you're getting that from the transit union. There was also this amazing thing where uh, NYPD tried to bring in MTA buses to store. You know. Uh, you know, people they'd arrested on and they wanted uh, MTA drivers to drive the buses and they walked, you know, and the MTA, you know, back them, which the, you know, if Maybe. people have never been around New York labor politics, the MTA is like, it, it, basically it's the MTA and the AFT. Like that is it. They're enormous. Uh, that's huge. I mean, I, I think this gets to the kind of like sea change we're seeing, even the like completely flaccid, completely, um, just cynical things you're seeing from like, say, Target or whatever, YouTube, whatever, all these corporations, the very fact that they're backing the protests and not the cops, no matter how lame their fucking comments are, how fucking useless they are, it shows that the, I think on some level they're starting to see the writing on the wall a little bit. You yeah. know, well, the cops have crossed turned. the line in a lot of people's yeah. mind. Look, the entire system is designed and set up to back them, yes. to have them as their tool. The entire political class and the entire press is Brian. Okay. Um, he, almost, he almost tripped and fell over. Um, the entire political class and the press 
are ready, ready and waiting to back the police in every possible move. Um, you know, that prosecutor in Minneapolis in his press conference, uh, like Sunday morning or something, maybe it was Saturday saying like, look, you know, we can't charge me up because, you know, yes, the video looks bad, but there's what? also other evidence that would suggest that we shouldn't make a charge here. And it's like, you know, like he was literally ready, even after seeing that video to like start preparing people for the fact that there would be no charges. Like he was ready to back them up. And the press like is so fucking ready. It's all they want to do. They want to use this passive language officer involved shooting um, dies in custody. They want to do this, but they're getting fucking shot at the press are getting fucking shot at and beaten and arrested. Even when they are sh- no, the cops know their press, they're telling the press, we don't care as they fucking club them. And it's like, and they're, they're going off. They're just going off the rails um, in these cities where these mayors are backing them up and making these mayors look fucking ridiculous and unelectable. And that's crossing, well, it's crossing a line. I mean, it's breaking through in the press, certainly. I mean, there are reporters and commentators on national news and the local stations who are saying shit I, that I can't even fucking believe, like saying out loud that, you know, specific protests were peaceful and then the cops started the violence like that is i've not heard that heard on it. tv in my yeah, life who was, who and i have, that was like police erupt in violence that was like the actual heading of their article the, yeah i think that was on the, like, slate yeah, was yeah, slate, yeah. yeah. but uh, there's but there's been a few other outlets uh, that have run very similar headlines uh, well i mean you had a guy on reporting you know live on msnbc who just keeps repeating over and over again these are peaceful protests and the police have attacked us attacked them and fired on them i mean unheard of yeah I'll, I'll unheard i mean like fuck cnn oh, but like yeah. van jones and don lemon have been coming out swinging the last couple of days and i've just been like Oh shit! <laughs> like Van Gogh said that like I, all white people have a disease in their brain, and I was like, "Oh fuck!" <laughs> like, <laughs> well, the thing, and yeah, and I think the thing to kind of remember about all this stuff is like, you know, not to uh, say that all these people are fucking awesome or anything. These people are not leaders. <laughs> like, no. These people are followers. Right. right? That means that the yes. yeah the wind yes. has changed. The people in Minneapolis who burnt down the third precinct, they're leaders, yeah. right? They have <laughs> they have shown yeah. America. The way the wind is blowing, we all saw it in the fucking smoke coming out of the third precinct. Right. Well, yeah. well, like, you know, think, Daddy Lennon always says is the people will be always farther left than the party. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And um, I think, you know, this is like so much good stuff. And this is Seattle sucks. So we got to mix in a little bad. Got to end on something awful. I mean, so this is a lot to choose from. Yeah, and I think that this brings up, you know, um, you know, where do the police fit in all this? And uh, I don't know. I'm sure since we're all on Twitter, we all got to see this. But, uh, you know, the NYPD police union, and again, the largest police force, not just in the country, but in the world, uh, literally doxed the mayor's daughter all the way up to her apartment number and everything else. Right? They like, had in custody at the time. Yeah. But doxed the mayor's daughter and a move that, I mean, I don't know how to interpret it any other way other than the police telling 
de Blasio that, uh, by the way, the most pliant mayor in the world when it comes to the police, but telling de Blasio, like, was backing them all the fucking way, but basically telling de Blasio, like, Hey, you know, we know where your daughter lives. Like we can get you. No, they had, apparently they they had her in custody at the time. Yeah. You know, it's the mafia shit of like, you know, uh, nice daughter you have here, real shame if something happens. Right. Yeah, Yeah. You know? And, uh, I think, that as much as we talk about, you know, the, the wind shifting and stuff, there is a real question over, like, to what degree does any mayor, any city council, even if they wanted to, which de Blasio certainly doesn't, but to what degree did any of them, if they wanted to, have any control over the police? And I think that's the next question that we have to really actually confront. Yeah. Well, um, that's very dark uh, thought. Um, look, uh, you know, they continue to kill people. Um, a An innocent man, literally a guy standing outside, a small business hero, uh, a pillar of the black community in his neighborhood in Louisville, oh a, a pit master. A pit, they killed a pit master. And who fucking yeah, like, for free at his fucking restaurant? He had like a cop. You gotta be fucking kidding me. Yeah. He had a fucking cops eat for free at his fucking restaurant, which just proves it doesn't fucking matter how nice you are to these motherfuckers. Yeah, like, don't side with these fucking do people. Not wow, okay. It will fucking kill you. And the fact that George Floyd, I don't know, like if you guys heard that story that George Floyd and Derek Chauvin fucking worked together for 17 yeah. fucking years. Yeah, that's fucked up. But anyway, these guys, the cops and the National Guard rolled along and I'm sure, you know, emboldened by each other, they opened fire on a crowd of of black men just standing around outside this in a parking lot outside this business just like doing their thing and they killed this man, this uh man with a barbecue restaurant. And again, yeah, I mean, that says it all right there. This is a small businessman who like loved the cops apparently and he's and he's dead they killed him they just for no reason just opened fire like they're doing they're doing all around the country with rubber bullets and tear gas and mace they did it with live ammo and another person is dead and i'm sure uh, you know as this goes on we're gonna be i'm sure we're gonna be finding out about other people um, also being murdered by police and it's it's very it's uh it's terrifying it's very sad um but uh there needs to be change in this country and that's can only come through solidarity uh in in the way we look uh in the way we see uh this society and the police state we're living in yeah cool gang um <laughs> this has been this has been Seattle sucks. Uh, Voter race graffiti. Do not do any corporate fucking cleanup for free. Yeah, I mean, uh, we didn't even get into this, but uh, those pe- those were the real outside agitators. But those people who went down and uh, did like graffiti cleanup, volunteer graffiti cleanup yeah. on Sunday morning, I there's, I think I said this on Twitter, but like. It is insulting to medieval peasants to call that peasant mindset. Yeah. There's there's oh. never been a more no. there's not even a species of dog that docile. Oh no, like, yeah. I mean it's smaller than serfdom even. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it reminds me of no, have you but, seen the movie A Bronx Tale? I have any either of you seen the movie A Bronx yeah, Tale? Oh my yeah, god. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. when 
the the kid Clodro, he's like crying over Mickey Mantle or whatever, and um the the mob boss Sonny, he's like, Oh, you care about Mickey Mantle? You think Mickey Mantle cares about you? Let me tell you this. Why don't you ask Mickey Mantle to pay your rent and see what he says? Like exactly. <laughs> like Nordstrom doesn't pay my fucking rent, dude. Fuck off. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Well, yeah. Do uh stand in solidarity with uh the communities of this country who are routinely brutalized by this police state do stand in solidarity uh with the broader working class don't fucking clean up corporations messes all right thanks marina for coming on yeah Yeah, thanks for coming on uh thanks again to sean scott who uh, was very generous uh, to come on and talk to us uh he's someone we really admire um, all right. Uh, oh, well, stay on. safe out there. O'Brien's got something more. Yeah, this is, uh, just keep going on forever. Marina, do you have anything you want to uh, plug or anything like that? Yeah. Don't be a freaking cop show. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, no, I have go. nothing really crazy going on in my life. I'm literally just fucking sitting at home. Um, yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. And also we'll put it in the show notes, but there are now bail funds all over the country. Oh, yes, uh, people should donate to yes. them. Uh, our, our Patreon millions will be going there as soon as we can find a bank that will allow us to get the money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> my monthly um, Patreon payment just came through today, so you guys should be getting my money today. We, 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 we've, it's there. We can see it. We don't have access to it at this moment, but yeah, we will post um, some... Capitalism! We'll post some more. <laughs> Bye, everybody! Bye! Bye.